We are reading 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 through 8, in this series called The Future for the Church, where we see in, as a theme in 1 Thessalonians um, who we are in Christ, what we are to do today in Christ, and then especially what we will be in Christ in our glorious future with Him. Uh, while you're turning there, just by show of hands, how many of you feel like you're either in or in the last year have been in a season of life where you prayed, God, show me your will for my life? Just by show of hands, anybody in the last year been in a place where you say, God, show me your will for my life? Okay, most, almost everyone, except for you in the back. So, okay, uh, the, it seems like God has made us so that we're constantly in this place where we need him to show us the next step to take. Even if we have plans, it doesn't seem like they always work out the way that we thought. And so this passage shows us the will of God. And when I was a new Christian, I received the advice that I think I'll just pass on to you to do with it what you will, that if you do the general will of God in your life and you focus on, generally speaking, doing what is God's will for all Christians then the rest of the specific decisions that you can make in your life, just do what you want. Like if you focus on loving your neighbor, making disciples, honoring God with obedience, worshiping him, making him priority in your life, then who cares if you go to UCLA or USC, you know? Or who cares what specific decision, like talk to some friends, pray about it, make the decision that you want. But if you focus on the general will, you're gonna do God's will in every aspect of your life. Now, that's not a legally binding piece of advice. I don't, I can't stand for everything that you'll decide because of that advice, but I found it to be true that if you focus on the general will, then the specific will tends to fall into place. God tells us his will for our lives in chapter 4, verse 1 through 8. Let's read it. Paul writes, as for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. And in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all of those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. God's word for this morning. The main point of this passage is in verse 3. Paul, it, it, the passage kind of does this, where in verse 3, it kind of climaxes in saying that it is God's will for every person who is saved by faith in Jesus Christ to then be sanctified. Sanctified is kind of a church term to say that Christians need to go on the ongoing process of Christian growth, increasingly free from sin and filled with Jesus. Like people who are saved by faith in Christ, not by works, so that no one can boast, then go on an ongoing process for the rest of their Christian life with a trajectory motivated and empowered by the Holy Spirit to be increasingly free from sin and filled with Jesus. Part of what Paul is saying here is that it is the natural outflow of a person who is saved by faith and not works 
that you will be growing in your faith. Now, there's ups and downs. There's new challenges. I know sometimes there's seasons of life, parts of my day, where you're less mature. You're less obedient. But over the long haul, the work of the Holy Spirit produces one thing in Christians, and it is sanctification, long-term Christian growth. The passage is really saying that Christian growth, with sex as a relevant example for the church in Thessalonica, will be happening, and it'll cause three things as far as the kind of big idea from the passage this morning. One, that real Christian growth always includes pleasing God, we saw it in verse one. Christian instruction, which we see in verse one, two, and eight, the word instruction is repeated three different times. And then countercultural obedience, which is the subject of sexuality from verses three to seven. So real Christian growth, long-term sanctification, always includes these three things. One, a heart to please God, Christian instruction, and countercultural obedience. So let's jump in. Paul starts the passage by getting our hearts into the right place by saying, we instructed you, we've been instructing you from the moment we preached the gospel to you and you said, yes, I want Jesus to be my Lord and Savior, that you would obey God out of a heart to please him. That is Paul's motivation for all kinds of writings that he does with the church. The goal for Christian obedience is to love God with your head, heart, and hands. But notice that's very different than the mixed bag of emotions that we tend to bring to our relationship with God. What I mean is, oftentimes when you think about repenting and becoming a Christian, we're such a mixed bag of motivations where we can get religious for ulterior motives, do all the right Christian deeds, but still have a sinful motivation, and therefore it will not cause radical life change, joy, and Christian growth. So as a few examples, you could become a Christian and do the right thing because you want to get conservative. You partied in college, then you clean your life up. A story as old as time. But if you're, if you're cleaning your life up so that you can feel superior, you can finally feel right in your life, you can feel better than other people and look at other people and say, I've got my act together. I follow uh, these moral principles of Christianity and you don't. You should be like me. That's just what the Bible would call self-righteousness. That's not out of a heart to please God. You could convert. You could become a Christian, so to speak, uh, by saying, I'm going to be good and God will answer my prayers. I want to succeed in life. I want to have good kids. So if I do my part, God, I'll act good, and then you have to answer my prayers. But in the end, you're just using God. It's not out of a heart to please God. It won't cause radical change. Because what happens in that scenario when God doesn't answer your prayer? You got into this religion thing to get God to be on your agenda and give you what you wanted. And when he says no, all you'll be left with is a lifeless form of Christianity that is um, going to cause bitterness in your life. You could go to God because you hope that your kids turn out moral, to please your parents, to feel morally superior, or even to seek an emotional feeling of connectedness. Whatever it is, the radical life change, the real goods in the Christian life comes when your heart transfers from a self-motivated life to one that says, I'm a sinner, God is holy. God has bridged that gap through his son Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. I'm unworthy of God's love, but he's been good to me by giving me his Holy Spirit. And because of that, I'm, I'm melted, I'm changed, I'm loved, I'm accepted. I have a bright future and a hope with Jesus. And because of this thing that God has done for me, I love him. It's out of a desire to please God that the real goodness of Christ, Christian life change happens in your life. And it has to be that way. It can't be self-motivated. Cultural commentators, people who pay attention to what people believe in their lives, 
have coined a term for the culture today that basically says you need to, well, I'll tell you the term, then I'll define it. The term that most people have in their life in terms of like joy and identity is called expressive individualism. Expressive individualism is a term that basically says um, each person will find their true self, dignity, identity, and joy in their personal desires and exploring and expressing your personal fingerprint of what you like sexually, with work, with uh, non-profity goodness behavior. Everyone has their unique kind of fingerprint in their life and you have to explore what's inside and then indulge those personal desires and in doing that, you'll express your individualistic true humanness. You'll find out who you really are by fulfilling your individual set of desires and no one should get in your way. No one should tell you about some other set of morals that don't fit to your particular fingerprint. That is called expressive individualism. All of this came like a shot into my mind the other day when I got done with my small group. Somebody at small group gave me the DVD of the Disney movie Frozen. Anybody else ever seen this movie? A little indie film, probably never seen it. And uh, I, I went home from small group and Hannah and I watched Frozen. And uh, as is typically the case with me and my wife, she fell asleep in the first five minutes and then I'm just up at midnight watching Frozen and then like crying at the end. And uh, here's the, the plot of the movie Frozen. Notice the cultural tendency within the plot of this movie. Elsa is the main character. She comes from a repressive, stiff, formal, conservative Republican set of parents that convinced her to hide her inner desires. She is miserable, therefore, and she can't hold it any longer. And then you start hearing some violence playing. Uh, as we build up to a song, the, as she bursts out with self-expression, the main musical theme has her finding her ultimate identity. She finally discovers herself by letting it go. And the song says, there's a swirling storm inside. I'll sing it for you. And she says, I couldn't keep it in, no matter, uh, heaven knows I tried. Don't let them in, don't let them see, be the good girl that you uh, always have to be, conceal. Don't feel, don't let them know. And at this point in the movie, I was thinking, I think I know what Elsa's issue is, but then it, I was wrong. It turned out to just be icicles from her fingers. So um, she's repressed. She has this thing that she has to hide and she finds her true joy and identity um, for the moment in letting it go. Today, we assume that we'll find our true identity by exploring and feeding into our personal passions and desires, and Paul teaches us that you have to flip it upside down or you have to run it backwards, however you say it. It's by a, having a heart that is not on yourself not on your own joy or your own pleasure, but by coming in contact with a God that you, that, that's good enough for you to want to love, that you find true joy, true identity. You really find yourself by loving God and pleasing Him. And as long as we come to God with an effort to save ourselves, one, God's not going to play that game. Two, you're playing yourself. It doesn't work. It's called the hedonic I'm full of fancy words today. Hedonic paradox. It's this idea that if you really want to be, if you really want to be happy, if you really want joy, then don't focus on your own joy. And Paul is, in a sense, feeding into that to say, focus on pleasing God as a means of obedience, and you'll see your life change.
By the way, this didn't really, didn't really work out for Elsa, if you've seen the movie. She's like ice skating on water, which if I was a kid, I'd be like, I want to be like Elsa. She's shooting ice all over the place, you know, it's super cool. But then in act two of the movie, she finds herself in this castle, lonely, isolated, icy castle of her own making. And then she's only saved, rescued. Her heart is melted by the sacrificial love of her sister. In the end, bad guy wants to kill Elsa. Her sister, who's loved her faithfully all along, steps in, takes the blow on herself, dies for a moment in a sacrificial love that changes Elsa's heart. And it's in that moment that Elsa realizes that once she's been loved all along, it was evidenced by a sacrificial act on her behalf, and then she's able to change, have radical life change in her life because of the sacrificial love that was done on her behalf. And the same is true with that of Christ. More on that later. Secondly, Paul gives the church Christian instruction. Unapologetically, he steps in with this letter into the life of the Thessalonican church and says, I'm an inst- we've been instructing you, and I'm going to instruct you, in verse 2, with the authority of the Lord Jesus. And then in verse 8 at the end of the passage, he bookends the passage by saying, if you reject this instruction, you're not just rejecting me, you're not rejecting a subset of beliefs about sexuality, you're rejecting God. And if I can tie that into the first point, in essence what Paul is doing is saying, if you think that you can come to God and say, I like this about you, Jesus, I like this about you, I love peace, joy, all these things that you've done for me, awesome, because I disagree with this opinion that you have, Jesus, I'm going to push you out. I'm going to keep you out of this part of my life. And Paul is saying, listen, don't think that you can just like scissors out God's opinion about sexuality and then have the full picture of what it looks like to be a Christian. If you push out the instruction, what you're really doing is pushing out God because you're saying, Jesus, I don't want all of you. I don't want all of your opinions about my life. I don't want you to have that much lordship, that much role as a savior in my life. I still want to be my own Lord and Savior in this part. So Paul reminds the church accurately, I think, that if you push out God in this instruction, because I know it's near and dear to you, after all it's sex, you're pushing out God and you're playing yourself. Like I said, in verse 1, he says, we instructed you, verse 2. I'm sorry, in verse 1, he also says, uh, at the end of verse 1 there, we asked and urged you to do. And Paul doesn't have a problem encouraging them to act a certain way. In verse 2, we instructed and gave you this by the authority of Jesus, and don't reject this instruction. Keep in mind, too, that the Thessalonican church, the church in Thessalonica, they're all new Christians. I mean, this isn't like an old church. This is a brand new church with brand new converts in a predominantly pagan society. And therefore, what Paul is giving them about sexuality specifically is a countercultural belief. There, uh, in Paul's world, there's like three ways to live. Oftentimes we think in the world that there's two ways to live. Religious way to live, non-religious way to live. Religious way to live says act good, be religious, go to church, uh, do the moral deeds and God will accept you. And uh, the non-religious way to live would be to say, forge your own path, decide what's true and right for you and find your identity in that process. But Paul is preaching to the church over and against both of those belief systems. Paul would tell you that, there, that Christianity is not a religious view, which basically says, if I could quote uh, an author, his name is Tim Keller, where he would say, religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. 
And a pagan view would say, forge your own path and make your own decision and accept yourself first and foremost. But a Christian perspective would be to say, I'm accepted by what Christ has done for me on the cross, therefore I obey. Religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. Uh, paganism has its own views, but Christianity is saying, God has done something for you in Jesus, therefore we love God and please God, and that's our motivation to, to give God the lordship of all of our life. There's a religious view, a pagan view, or a heathen view, depending on your, interpret- or your uh, translation of the passage today, but then there's a Christian view. And in our world today, isn't that really the, the paradigm that we see ourselves in? Everything in our world today is so politicized. It's like um, everyone has just run to the side and said, you're either like a hardcore Christian, obedient, church-attending, Bible-reading, Orthodox Christian, or you're totally not. Uh, When people poll what people believe about religion, the fastest-growing religious group in the um, in the country is the nuns. Have you guys heard this? That there's people who check the word nun when asked what a religious affiliation do you have. That's the fastest growing group of people in American religious belief for people who check nun. I have no religious affiliation in any way. Whatever it is, things are polarized. Things are separated. There's a blue state's way to live and there's a red state's way to live and the blue states think the red states are ruining the world and the red states are like, poo, 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 y'all. And then they're like telling you, uh, you're ruining the world. And, and there's conservative people and there's liberal people and, and there's nothing in the middle. That's all. Those are your two choices. And Paul actually is in a sense saying, it's not what pole you pick or whether you're like this perfect balance in the middle. It's a totally different motivation, a different life, that, mo- that, that which is motivated by the gospel and in love with God. And because of that, Paul can unapologetically say, I am bringing you this uniquely Christian instruction that as new Christians, you need to like make this your worldview, wrap your head around it and start to think and therefore obey like Christians. I want us to use that rubric, this third way approach to living that Paul uses, and I want to talk about it for the rest of this morning on the issue of sexuality. So three, Paul encourages the church to have countercultural obedience. Paul is saying that the church has to obey God in this area or you're going to lose your radical, life-changing power that actually causes us to be on mission as a church in a pagan world. Um, it's funny because the, everyone always thinks that the beliefs that we have today are the most modern, the most thoughtful you've ever heard, you know? But if you really pay attention to it, you'll see that our culture is actually just regressing back into an ancient pagan culture. And more on that on, in some other day, but in the end, we're not the most modern. Our ideas are actually not that new. The, the dominant beliefs about sexuality and gender and tribalism and, and war and whatever, they're just old ideas, and it's called paganism, and Paul is preaching against it in the first century. So there's a pagan view of sex, there's a religious view of sex, and there's a Christian view of sex, and we're going to walk through the three of these for the rest of this morning. The pagan view of sex is that sex is a god. The religious view of sex is that sex is gross, and the Christian view of sex is that sex is a glorious gift that you could live without because it's not the greatest thing that'll ever happen to you in life. Like Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, he's talking about sex. It's obviously a good thing. He talks about it in Ephesians, he, all over the place. I mean, obviously sex has a role with God's people beyond just making babies. So Paul has a high view of sex, 
But then in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, hey, if you're single, stay single. Don't idolize some act as though it'll make your soul finally find resolution in sexuality. That's a lie. So Paul's like unapologetically talking about how good sex is, but then he's still free single people up to go, it's being single is good. Honor God. Serve God. Obey Him. Don't get tied down by a spouse. You're fine. There is a greater joy to be had than that of sexual pleasure. Something that we don't hear much in our culture today. So the Christian view of sex is something that's good, glorious, but not uh, an identity. So let's talk about pagan views of sex. A pagan view of sex is that sex is a god. They used to have sex with temple prostitutes in the Roman Greek world of the day. It was, in essence, there were a lot of pagan views about sexuality. Some of them said it's just an appetite. So you, uh, and Paul even addressed this in 1 Corinthians, that uh, when you're hungry, eat. When you're feeling sexy, have sex. And it's just an appetite to fulfill and then move on with your life. But uh, there's also a, a dominant trend within paganism in the first century that saw sex as something that was like ultimate, and they made it a god. Helen Gurley Brown is, uh, was the old, famous, well-known editor-in-chief of Cosmopolitan magazine, you know, a magazine that kind of typified the sex-positive view of basing on the dress set 1970s. <laughs> And, uh, and so she was quoted as saying this in an interview, that sex is one of the three best things there are in life. The interviewer asked her, what are the other two? She said, who knows? Obviously, the point being that she uh, saying is sex that is the most important thing. She also went on to say, uh, you have to keep reciting it to yourself. I am a sexual person. I want sex in my life. I deserve it, and I'm not going to let it disappear. She went, went on later to sing, let it go, let it go. Can't hold me back anymore. That was a joke. Okay, so uh, she's saying the exact same thing that we believe in today, just ramped up a little bit. She's saying, you have to tell yourself, I'm a sexual person. Now, you have to pick your moments as to when you like talk to yourself about those sort of things. But she's saying, you have to convince yourself this is what will make you fully human, fully free. That's what she's saying. Don't let anyone repress you from these beliefs. Now, I am uh, certainly not advocating sources of oppressing, especially women in our culture or what have you, but you just have to analyze the concept to say, is that the way to true life? Will that actually fulfill you in a way that you think? That's why um, it's worth criticizing that the pagan view of sex is that sex is a god. The religious view of sex is unfortunately a view of sex that a lot of Christians hold, and it's this, that sex is gross, that it's a necessary evil to make kids and have a family, but that oh, other than that, enough with all the giggling and the pinching and all the romance, it's just for making kids because after all, that's not religious. It's a belief that says, because, track with me on this, because it might cause sin in your life, therefore the object itself is evil. Because you might sin in this particular area, therefore you need to start developing a callous hatred for that thing, so much so that it pushes you away from sin. But like, a little tip for you, side note, tangent, the way to eradicate sin in your life is by loving Jesus more than the object, not by hating sex 
alcohol, money, or any of the things that might cause temptation in your life. It's our tendency to go, I'm tempted in this way that's sexual. I'm going to hate it. I'm going to try and develop a negative attitude towards it. But then you just become a religious person that's saying, I'm going to develop rules upon rules to protect myself from doing a bad deed, while your heart is still self-serving by saying, I need to build a structure so that I'm righteous. Instead, we need to find our righteousness in Christ, worship Christ, have our heart and our delight be on Him, so that when temptation comes into your life, you're able to say, God is too much to me. He's too delightful to me. My joy is too wrapped up in what He's done for me in Christ that I'm not going to settle for this false God. That's how real life change happens. End of tangent. Uh, Moving forward, that the religious view would say, like in verse 5, that when Paul instructs us to not have passionate lusts like the pagans who do not know God, that you would read that as kind of like an old-timey sounding religious statement that says that we shouldn't have passion and that having passion is uh, not knowing God. But that's not what the pastor is saying. It's actually exactly the opposite. Pay attention uh, to this one word, the word lust. In verse 5, Paul uses a Greek word that he uses often, and I mentioned it a few weeks ago, I think, that um, Paul's word for lust is epithumia. Epithumia is literally translated as inordinate desire, an over-desire, thumia, desire, epi, intense. So the problem with lust with the Apostle Paul is that you take a good thing and you make it a God thing. You take something that's meant to be good in a context and you make it ultimate. You make it about your identity. You make it about your freedom. And that's when it starts to destroy your life. It lets you down and it causes you to hurt other people. It makes you ruin relationships. The issue is not that sex isn't good in a biblical framework and in a biblical context. It's that we're taking a good thing and making it a false god. So Paul says, not in passionate epithumia like pagans. And then he's saying, of course, Of course they would worship sex. They don't know God. They don't know something greater. And so, of course, they settle for this lesser God, little g God, that they serve. But whatever it is, understand the implication behind that word is that sex, the problem with it is that we make it an epi-desire, not just a normal desire. The Christian view of sex is saying sex is a good thing. Uh, Case in point. Uh, when I was a youth pastor back in the day, I would do like a little Bible study with teenagers, and we would read the book of Song of Solomon. Um, the Song of Solomon is a poetic uh, writing from Solomon in the Old Testament about a love relationship between a godly man and a godly woman, and it is steamy. There's no whispering secretly about sex in the Song of Solomon. It's just right out there. Now, granted, you have to understand some metaphors, but if you had a religious view of sexuality, you'd read Song of Solomon, and you'd be like, why is Solomon so preoccupied with like large, tall, long cedar trees? <laughs> Why is Solomon always talking about pomegranates, you know, plural? It's no Bob Ross painting, folks. Uh, this is a metaphor. And uh, he's talking about sexuality, steamy, intimate, passionate love, where a woman is talking to her husband about these metaphors. And um, boy, if you use them in your marriage... You'd be blushing, you know what I mean? And uh, the Bible does not have a low view of sexuality. It just has it in a context that it says it's a good, glorious gift that, of course, even as good as it is, is not your identity, for, especially for those who are single. 
The goodness of sex is very clear. We even see it back in our passage. Let's look back to it. In verse 3, it says, it's God's will that you should be sanctified by avoiding sexual immorality. The Greek word there is porneia. That's where we get pornography from. It's where we get fornication, the word fornication from. It's referring to any sex outside of the context of marriage, uh, in, in, a, in a biblical marriage, and therefore all of those other acts are porneia, or sinful. But again, notice it does not say, it's God's will that you should be sanctified, and therefore avoid sexual contact. It does not say that. A case in point, I went to a conference one time where we studied the Song of Solomon. It was just like a week-long thing where we studied the book day in and day out, and uh, I was single at the time, so it was a lot of preparatory stuff because it was, it was kind of like a marriage conference. And uh, the speaker was telling a story about the way to have intimate love within a relationship. And I want to tie it to a passage before I tell you how he applied it. But he looked at a passage like this in verse 4, where God's goal for us in verse 4 is to have sex that is holy and honorable. And so the speaker was pointing out the, the fact that there's a way to have sex in the context of marriage that honors someone. And he made the point that you could come home from work and honor your spouse because if the lies of the world tell your spouse that you're ugly or you're worthless, there's nothing quite like a, a spouse. We're coming home to a spouse that says, I think you're beautiful and I love you and I know what will cheer you up. Sex. So the, uh, the, the power of a spouse can honor a spouse within the context of marriage to say, I love you, I cherish you, and let's do this thing that reminds us of the intimacy that we have with one another, that there's a, a, a beauty and an honoring of that person. And then he went on to say that anything within the context of marriage as an application can be holy and honorable. And so if it is holy and if it is honorable, then within the context of marriage, have joy with each other to find out what is honoring and what is holy in terms of the practices that you uh, share. And so there, somebody gave uh, a testimony about like um, wearing a Batman costume. This guy was talking a story about how he was like, he would, he would like barge into the house with a Batman cape on and he would be like, I don't even know what, how the action went down, but he basically, long story short, he was jumping off the dresser onto the bed with a Batman cape on as an act of holiness and honorableness. And then he hurt his back and then had to, the ambulance had to get called because he was like, I was like superhero husband. And then all of a sudden I hurt my back and then just had to lay there with the cape over him. Like, like... Help me. <laughs> Anything that's holy and honorable in the context of marriage, intimacy, there's a way to do that. And the Bible doesn't blush about those things. So let's close with kind of defending the context, the purpose, and the, the goodness of sex. In verse 3, it says, it's God's will that you should be sanctified by avoiding sexual immorality. And like I said, that's one Greek word that is describing for us the fact that anything that is porneia is tied to verse 6 when Paul says that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. Paul does not separate porneia and taking advantage. What he's saying is, if you are not ready to match intimacy and commitment 
then you are not loving the entire person, and therefore sex is, compl- is totally destructive. He even uses very strong words to say there's judgment in store for someone who is taking advantage in that way. And so Paul's opinion about sex, Paul's biblical ethic that he kind of gathers from all of the Bible and then teaches in a consolidated manner to these new Christians is that anything that is porne, anything out of God's design for sexuality, will only treat the body, but it will never treat the body and the soul, respecting and honoring them in holiness together. And so that's why intimacy in marriage, that's why intimacy in your life has to match commitment. And that's why God's design is that sexuality is between a man and a woman in the context of marriage. In the first century, we see, in, as we look through history, what it looks like to have a pagan culture. Like, we already know what that looks like. We've lived through it. History has shown us it. And men always end up in a power place with a pagan sex ethic, and women are always mistreated. I think it is the case today, but we know it is the case in history. So you cannot take my word for it today, but look into history and see that the more men were able to swipe, the more men had the power in a relationship, and the more men could convince women to adopt the more sinful men, pagan men, could adopt women to adopt their sexual ethic, the more women were mistreated. The consequences fell on them. And it was very convenient in a pagan world that the men kind of got off scot-free. I see it as happening in our culture today. So in the first century, men of privilege would have a wife that they married for money or status. They would have a girlfriend over and apart from that that was acceptable in the culture for uh, sexual pleasure, but also this was kind of like the girl that you liked spending time with because you didn't like your spouse. And then uh, a man of privilege would have a concubine that was just for sexual pleasure um, and no commitment. And then on top of that would have whatever set of a uh, harem of people that were for other sexual pleasures. Whatever it is, men were given the height, at the height of this pagan sex ethic and privilege, men would have sex when they wanted with no respect for the person. And so Paul has this countercultural view of sexuality where Paul says, your spouse needs to be your recreational partner, the mother and father of your kids, the person that you spend your time with, and the person that you commit to financially, contractually, legally, and that all needs to be the same person. Because you have to match intimacy and commitment. You have to respect the whole person just like God does. And I just want to finish with this. The reason why that's important is because that's how God loves you. That God is, in Scripture, the lover of your soul. God loves you spiritually. But as Paul walks through 1 Thessalonians, and we have a future hope with God, remember, our future with God is physical as well. We're resurrected bodily. Jesus came physically to be with us and save us spiritually for the sake of a very physical, real future that we have in the new heavens and new earth when Christ returns. God treats us as whole people, physical and spiritual, and he does not separate them, and nothing else should separate that in our lives. From the prophets through the New Testament, there's a metaphor that marriage is meant to show us. It's like when you get married, if you get married, this whole practice of marriage showing up every day. How was your day? I don't know. How was your day? Commitment, like real lifelong, all the time, you're there in your marriage committed. It's meant to show us what Christ has done for us as our bridegroom. Now, men, sorry if this metaphor is weird, but the church, God's people, are the bride, and we are accepted down the aisle, white, 
pure, white dress, pure, loved, accepted, just like a bride is in our wedding ceremonies. And that he is our bridegroom. And he's the truer and better groom. He's the truer and better husband of the church who always sacrifices, always stands firm on the truth, always supplies and defends and always loves. And that's why Paul, in Ephesians 4, can say, Paul in Ephesians 4 can say, Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy to present her holy and blameless. Because this God that we serve is our true bridegroom, our true husband, in a sense, who has sacrificed himself for us to make us holy and acceptable and lovable to God. And that's the motivation that we take to say we're cared for, we're taken care of, we're accepted, to please God and to have radical change in our lives in three ways, like we saw. A heart to please God, Christian instruction that guides us in our life and countercultural obedience. Let's pray.